Well, I think our children's church teachers are in the back and ready for you, young folks, if you're going to head out today. And the rest of you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Acts and the second chapter. The Bible teaches clearly that any giving on the part of God's people is a demonstration of the grace of God through those people. And I want to emphasize again what Charles just said, by virtue of praise, not so much for us, right, though you're to be commended, uh, God's grace <clears throat> was manifest mightily through you in the giving of many thousands of dollars to see the word of God go to Alaska. And uh, I assure you that that ministry is for real. Um, they're not playing games up there. They're not fishing. They're not looking and climbing mountains and pursuing grizzly bears. They are there uh, to labor on Christ's behalf. And whether you are going or whether you gave toward their going, this is the work of God through us, and we give him all glory for that. Well, if you've not been here in past weeks, we have been considering the day of Pentecost. This will mark the third, really, in a series of four messages, which I plan to wrap up next week, Lord willing. But we've been looking at the day of Pentecost, and this was a great day, and it was a day that was foretold in the Old Testament, and... It was a day in which the Spirit was poured out upon the people of God and the New Testament church was born. The outpouring was evidenced, as you know, by divinely orchestrated signs. There, there, there was a wind, the sound of wind, and it was, a, it was a mighty hurricane from heaven that blew through there. It was the noise, verse 2 says, like a violent rushing wind which filled the whole house. It was enough to alert all of the folks who were there in Jerusalem within earshot to, to come and try to figure out what in the world just transpired. It was loud. It was violent. There was also this sign of tongues of fire, a very representation of God himself being present in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then there were people who were speaking languages that they had never learned. They were speaking in tongues, as it is often called, this gift. It really was the gift of languages, and we've considered that at some length. We're going to think a little further about it again today. Last week, we examined this question. Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And the answer to the question is, if you're a Christian, yes. It was at the point of your conversion. It was at the point of regeneration that you were baptized once and for all with the Holy Spirit and filled with him. This week we're asking a different question, related. And the question is this, should we as God's people expect the kind of thing that we saw on the day of Pentecost, that when someone is saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit, should we expect cloven tongues? Should we expect a, a, a loud, rushing, violent wind? Should we expect that every Christian should speak in tongues? 
In other words, is the gift of tongues for today? And in attempting to answer that question, I want to emphasize this, that we, we have to really come to grips with the nature of this gift. It's a very, very important issue when we're considering the expression of tongues that we see today in the church. In other words, is what transpired back then what is transpiring today? Can we, can we draw a line between the two and call them equivalent? So it's, critically to un- it's critical for us to understand that the gift of tongues, hear me now, was universally understood to be the supernatural ability to speak authentic foreign languages that the speaker had never learned. It's critical to understand that. And it's critical to understand that that was the understanding of the gift of tongues, even from those who eventually came to be known as Pentecostals, as we shall see. This fact is patently clear in Acts 2. Look at it with me. If you just look at verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages. Remember the word for tongues and languages is the same, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And of course, all of these Jews from other outlying areas, other countries had descended or ascended really to to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They were all gathered there speaking many different languages. And what we see is that after the Spirit is poured out, these 120 have now gone out into the street, presumably. They are preaching Christ. They're speaking of the glory of God, and they're declaring things in a language they had never learned, never studied, never, never pursued in any way, shape, or form. You had people who, in, in our context, if this were the, today, it would be you had people who only spoke English speaking German and French and Italian and any number of other languages that were present. And I think he lists there, I know it's more than 10. He gives, the, he gives all the different languages there beginning in verse 9. Notice verse 8. How is it, the people are asking, that we hear these Galileans in our own language in which we were born? They were baffled by this. They were amazed by this. The end of verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God, and they were all continuing in astonishment and great perplexity. And you'll remember some were intrigued to figure out what this was all about, and others simply mocked them and said they're just drunk. But it was only 9 o'clock in the morning. People aren't drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. It's so evident that, that these were, in fact, genuine languages that continuationist Wayne Grudem, and what I mean by continuationist is simply this, for our purposes this morning, a continuationist is somebody who believes that the gift of tongues continues to function even in the church today. So this is a continuationist writing about the phenomena we see in Acts and in 1 Corinthians. Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology, he writes, quote, It should be said at the outset that the Greek word glossa, translated tongue, 
is not used only to mean the physical tongue in a person's mouth, but also to mean language. In the New Testament passages where speaking in tongues is discussed, the meaning languages is certainly in view. It is unfortunate, therefore, that English translations have continued to use the phrase speaking in tongues, which is an expression not otherwise used in ordinary language or English, and which gives the impression of some strange experience, something completely foreign to ordinary human life. But if English translations were to use the expression speaking in languages, it would not seem nearly as strange and would give the reader a sense much closer to what first century Greek-speaking readers would have heard in the phrase when they read it in Acts or 1 Corinthians. What we have is a continuationist making my point, (laughs) okay? And we can talk further about why he might end up at that conclusion, but here's the point. During that important, critically important, transitional, apostolic period of the church, frankly, it is non-negotiable that the gift of tongues was, in fact, the gift of languages. It would be better if we just started speaking that way about it. There really is no debating this, at least from the book of Acts. But I wanted to ask the question this morning, what about church history? What does church history have to teach us about this? Well, we know for a fact that it's certain that for a time this gift continued. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, which is one of the earliest epistles. Tongues were very influential in that church, and we will get there next week to talk about the things that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It's interesting, though, that we find no mention of tongues at all in any other epistle. Even though there are many other epistles that talk about spiritual gifts, Romans and Ephesians and 1 Peter being the most pronounced and and, and, and uh, thorough treatments of spiritual gifts, there's no mention of tongues in any of those later letters. In fact, there are only three places in Scripture where you can find this doctrine. One is in the, in the spurious ending of Mark 16 and verse 17, a text we haven't even talked about yet, in the book of Acts, and then you find it in the book of 1 Corinthians between chapters 12 and 14, our text for next week. But here's the thought. If the gift continued to be exercised in the church throughout the centuries that followed, it's reasonable, isn't it rational, that somewhere in our reading of church history, we would find some discussion about the gift of tongues and how it was utilized in the church throughout the generations. So the question is, what does a broad sweep of 2,000 years of church history teach us about the continuation of the gift of tongues? And the answer to that question is this that the gift of tongues passed from the scene after the apostolic age. I'm going to apologize in advance. A sure way to destroy even a reasonable sermon is to excessively quote people, but I really want to quote people and put it in their own words. Here is, what did the church fathers, this is the generation after the apostles, what did they think? 
about tongues. Here's Gregory of Nizanzius. He writes this, quote, They spoke with foreign tongues and not those of their native land. And the work, or and the wonder was great, a language spoken by those who had not learned it. And the sign is to them that believe not and not to them that believe, unquote. John Chrysostom, the man with the golden tongue, said this, quote, so then many tongues frequently meant in, met in one man, meaning many languages in one person who was filled with the Holy Spirit, that one and the same person used to discourse within, in the Persian, in the Roman, in the Indian, and many other tongues, the Spirit sounding within him. And the gift was called the gift of tongues because he could all at once speak in various languages. St. Augustine. Quote, in the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed, and they spoke with tongues which they had not learned, as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time, for it was necessary for there to be that sign of the Holy Spirit in all tongues to show that the gospel of God was to run throughout all tongues over the whole of the earth. That thing was done and it passed away. What about the reformers? What about later in history? What about those guys like Calvin and Luther? Well, they also regarded this supernatural ability to speak in languages as something that had passed off the scene. Here's Calvin commenting on 1 Corinthians 12. There was a difference between the knowledge of tongues and the interpretation of them. Notice that he's speaking in past tense. For those who were endowed with the former, that is the gift of tongues, were in many cases not acquainted at all with the language of the nation with which they had to deal. The interpreters rendered foreign tongues into the native tongue. These endowments they did not at the time acquire by labor or by study, but they were put in possession of them by a wonderful revelation of the Spirit. Martin Luther says much the same. This actually was a, he's commenting on Corinthians in, in a piece entitled A Treatise Against Andreas Karlstadt. That's the kind of letter that you wrote back in the day. A treatise against whoever. Luther writes, whoever comes forward and wants to read, teach, or preach, and yet speaks with tongues, that is, speaks Latin instead of German, or some unknown language, he is to be silent and preach to himself alone. Again, he's commenting on 1 Corinthians 14 at that point. For no one can hear it or understand it, and no one can get any benefit from it. Or if he should speak with tongues, he ought, in addition, to put what he says into German which is precisely what Paul says. If you have the gift of tongues, then you ought to pray that you also might be given the gift of interpretation so that it can make sense. What you're saying can be heard by the congregation and understood. He who speaks with tongues, he ought, in addition, to put what he says into German or interpret it in one way or another so that the congregation may understand it, he says. Well, we could add to these the names of the Puritans. We really could take the whole of the evangelical church all the way up to the 20th century 
the testimony is very, very consistent. Now, someone might say, are you telling me that there was nobody and no group of people in church history ever who spoke about this issue of tongues and who were continuationists? And the answer to that question is no. There were a number of individuals and a number of obscure groups who practiced what we now see in the Pentecostal church, this kind of irrational, ecstatic speech. And what I mean by irrational is it's not mindful, it's not... It's not something that is, that is clear, logical, reasonable thinking. It's, it's mindless, ecstatic speech. There were people in history, people like Montanus, for example. This is back, he lived from 126 to 180. Before conversion, Montanus was a priest of the ecstatic cult of Sybil, and he worshipped the pagan idol Bacchus, whose followers spoke in strange tongues. And that's one thing, if you're familiar at all with the modern era, you're aware that what is going on in the church today by way of of that ecstatic speech is mimicked, it's evidenced also in, in pagan religion. You'll find it in many cults today. And the idea is that Montanus imported this thing into Christianity. Montanus and his followers comprised a a heretical sect of Christianity who, frankly, whittled their Bible down to the book of John. Now, why would they do that? Why the Gospel of John? Because John, in John, John speaks often of the Spirit of God. And and therefore, this became the, the very focus of this religion. In fact, Montanus's followers thought he was the very embodiment of the Holy Spirit. Early church historian Eusebius writes this, a recent convert, Montanus by name, through his unquenchable desire for leadership, gave the adversary opportunity against him, and he became beside himself. Being suddenly in a sort of frenzy and ecstasy, he raved, and he began to babble and utter strange things, prophesying in a manner contrary to the custom of the church handed down by the tradition from the beginning. Some of those who heard his spurious utterances at that time were indignant and they rebuked him as one who was possessed and that he was under the control of a demon and he was led by a deceitful spirit and that he was distracting from the multitude. Another man by the name of Pacomius, history records this. This is Philip Schaff from his History of the Christian Church. Tradition ascribes to him all sorts of miracles, even the gift of tongues, and perfect dominion over nature, so that he trod without harm on serpents and scorpions, and he crossed the Nile on the back of crocodiles. Make of that what you will. We could speak of the Camisards and the Jansenists in France. We could speak of the Quakers, and all of these are a direct line to what we have today in the Pentecostals and the Charismatic Church. All of them claim the gift of tongues. But it's very clear, if you're aware of what's going on in in these congregations at all, is that the tongues, supposed tongues anyway, that are being spoken are, are not anything like what the Bible records in Acts and I believe in 1 Corinthians. 
they were speaking or they are speaking in tongues that are not at all languages, but they're, they're, they're non-linguistic, they're mystical, it's ecstatic speech. One Pentecostal preacher recorded the practice this way, he, he, speaking of tongues, he says, it involves you with someone you're deeply in love with and devoted to. We don't understand the verbiage, but we know we're in communion. It is beyond emotion. It is beyond intellect. It transcends human understanding. It is the heart of man speaking to the heart of God. It is deep inner heart understanding. It comes as supernatural utterances bringing intimacy with God. And I think if you talk to modern-day tongues speakers, at least they believe themselves to be tongue speakers, you'll hear just those kinds of things. This is, a, this is something between me and God. This is something that, that is, is intimate, and, and it's edifying to me, and it builds me up, and I feel near to God when I do it. And remember, the goal of all of this, my friends, is not at all to, to, to throw a dagger at Charismatics and Pentecostals. I know many. I love many. I have many relatives and friends both. The, 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 but I think they're wrong. Okay? And, and I'm seeking here to, to draw us down to what does the Bible teach because that has got to be the foundation of everything. Now, I think this is surprising And I think it is largely unknown, even to most Pentecostals, that the very founder of Pentecostalism, Charles Fox Parham, was absolutely convinced that the biblical gift of tongues consisted in the supernatural ability to speak foreign languages that the speaker had never heard. It happened at Parham's Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, which he opened in 1900. It was January 1st, 1901, after an all-night prayer meeting for the baptism of the Spirit that one of Parham's students, a woman 30-year-old by the name of Agnes Osman, spoke in a strange tongue. They thought it was Mandarin. They actually had her, you can find this on the internet, you'll, you'll see, she actually wrote it down. It wasn't long until Parham and the other students there had the same experience. I want to give you Osmond's own testimony. These are Agnes Osmond's own words. She writes this, During the first day of 1901, the presence of the Lord was with us in a marked way, stilling our hearts to wait upon him for greater things. The spirit of prayer was upon us in the evening. It was nearly 7 o'clock on this 1st of January, and it came into my heart to ask Brother Parham to lay his hands upon me that I might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that that is a subsequent baptism in the spirit. She wanted something that... If she was in Christ, she already possessed. That I might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it was as his hands were laid upon my head that the Holy Spirit fell upon me and I began to speak in tongues glorifying God. I talked several languages. And it was clearly manifest when a new dialect was spoken. I had the added joy and glory my heart longed for with a depth 
of presence of the Lord within that I had never known before. It was as if rivers of living waters were proceeding from my innermost being. The following morning, she writes, I was accosted with questions about my experience the night before. I bet. As I tried to answer, I was so full of glory that I pointed out to them the Bible references showing that I had received the baptism according to Acts 2 and Acts 19, verses 1 to 6. In other words, I received the same gift that they received on the day of Pentecost. It was my own personal Pentecost. I was the first one to speak in tongues, she writes, or Yeah, she writes, uh, in the Bible school, and it seemed to me that the rest were wanting to speak in tongues too, but I told them not to seek for tongues, but to seek for the Holy Ghost. I did not know at that time that anyone else would speak in tongues. I did not expect the Holy Spirit to manifest himself to others as he did to me, end quote. This January 1st, 1901, is the birth of the Pentecostal church. Parham described his experience this way. From the Topeka State Journal, January 7th, 1901. Listen again. The Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study in schools. Remember, the point I'm trying to demonstrate is that even Pentecostals in the beginning believe these to be legitimate foreign languages. Kansas City Times, January 27, 1901. A part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power. The Hawaiian Gazette, May 31, 1901. We're five months, six months down the road here. There is no doubt at this time they will have conferred on them the gift of tongues if they are worthy and seek it in faith, believing that they will thus be made able to talk to the people whom they choose to work among in their own language, which will, of course, be an inestimable advantage. The students of Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn the languages. They have them conferred upon them miraculously, being able to converse with Spaniards, Italians, Bohemians, Hungarians, Germans, and French in their own language. I have no doubt the various dialects of the people in India or even the languages of the savages of Africa will be received during our meeting in the same way. I expect this to be the greatest since the days of Pentecost. One more quote from Parham. The Holy Ghost knows all languages of the world, and all we have to do is yield ourselves wholly to God and wholly to the Holy and to the Holy Ghost, and power will be given us so that we will have such control of our vocal cords that we will enter any country, any country on earth, and talk and understand the language. The time is now at hand when we should all receive this gift of tongues. Now, beloved, that is in direct opposition to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Do all have the gift of tongues? What's the answer to the question? No, there's no single gift that any believer has, but you can see how this doctrine is beginning to build and beginning to depart. 
Now in order to get the gift, you have to be worthy. You have to have the right amount of faith. You have to go through a series of, of, of things that will qualify you for this gift. And, and, and here it is that all believers should have this quote-unquote second baptism and the gift that comes with it. He says, we have received a command to carry out our religion to all nations of the earth. We will not have to wait to master the foreign languages. God will give us the power to speak so that we will be understood. Parham and his students believe they had received the legitimate gift of tongues as it is revealed in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, they thought they would be enabled to go into foreign countries and, and speak the language so that their hearers would immediately understand. But there was one significant problem. When Parham sent out his missionaries, they went to those foreign countries, and lo and behold, what did they find? Except that their hearers looked at them with a blank stare like, what? Language are you speaking? Humbled and heartbroken, they returned home, and this upstart movement faced a real crisis, one that I think is characterized beautifully by Nathan Busnitz, professor at the Master's Seminary. He writes this, quote, When it became apparent that the Pentecostal understanding of tongues did not consist of human languages, the entire movement was faced with an interesting dilemma. They could uphold their exegetical understanding of tongues and deny their experience, or they could hold on to their experiential understanding of tongues and radically change their exegesis. They chose the latter, end quote. You get what he's saying. Either their experience of whatever it was they were speaking, they were going to hang on to that experience even though experience and Scripture had proven them wrong, or they would choose to go with what Scripture actually taught. And so this is a very important point for us to understand, that this is the point at which Tongues went from, in the church, generally being understood as languages to now it's going to generally be understood as, as gibberish, as that ecstatic babble that you've heard if you've watched it on YouTube or been part of these churches. And again, it's amazing to me as I've listened to many of you, many of you come up at, at just moments where we've, we've bumped into each other in the hallways or my office or wherever just over the past couple of weeks, and I keep hearing story after story consistent with my own where, where you've bumped into this, and you began to wonder. I, I had a woman even today share with me that when she was at college, she bumped into this kind of thing, and it was, it was very unsettling because who by the age of 18 has their pneumatology all worked out? Not me and probably not you. And so these things can be very confusing, and that's why we're even considering them. We need to understand this, and I think Business points this out so well, and, and that is that Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity puts a very, very, very high premium on experience. And all of us can do that. It's tough to deny your experience, isn't it? 
It's always a temptation to redefine the Bible to fit your experience. I don't think it's unfair at all to say that in, in, in the Pentecostal community, subjective experience trumps Scripture almost every time. Now, don't get me wrong. Scripture is important to the charismatic. It is important to the Pentecostal. It's just that inevitably what seems to happen is that somehow the authority becomes experience and experience judges what's taught in the Bible. It interprets the Bible in its own way. Listen, if Scripture invalidates your practice or your perspectives, Beloved, we've got to discipline ourselves to go with Scripture and not our experience. Experiences can be false. The Bible cannot. And your authority is either going to rest in the Word of God or your authority is going to rest with yourself and the way you see things and the way you've experienced things in life. I remember a man who was considering divorce, and I sat down with him over a meal And I showed him in the Bible what God thinks of divorce and why what he was considering was dangerous and it was sinful. And I was trying to help him hang on to his marriage and he just kept saying to me, that's not the way my Bible reads. At which point I'd turn the Bible to him and say, you read it. And he wouldn't and he'd say, that's not the way my Bible reads. What's he saying to me? The way I feel, I found a new soulmate. I married the wrong person. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the way my Bible reads. You see, we can all do this. Scripture must rule the day. We have everything we need for life and godliness and the truth of God's word, and we need to cling to it and keep it as our authority, our sole authority. Now, Agnes Osmond and the others had some kind of spiritual experience, no question about it, but they mistook it for the biblical gift of tongues. And then when it proved to be gibberish, rather than judging their experience as false, they came to a new interpretation of what was happening in Acts and 1 Corinthians. And charismatics and Pentecostals today have to go through massive hermeneutical gymnastics to hang on to their point of view. Well, The rest is history, and it's a very colorful history at that. Someday I'd like to teach a class on it because it's worth going through the history. But attention went in 1901 from the school, apparently Bethel School closed down about a year later, and then attention swung down to Los Angeles on Azusa Street in 1906, what is called the Azusa Street Revival, and it was led by one of Parham's students. And Azusa then was followed by the establishment of the Assemblies of God Church in 1914, which then was followed by the International Church of the Foursquare and their founder, Amy Semple McPherson, in 1927. And what you see is this thing beginning to swell so that by the time you reach the 70s and the 80s, what you find now is Oral Roberts and Jim Baker and Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagan and John Wimber and C. Peter Wagner and... Todd Bentley and the New Apostolic Reformation and Bethel Church over in Reading, even this morning, caught up in all of this stuff. And I know some of those names are familiar to you. 
And like I said last week, this is not child's play. One in four professing Christians in this day and age are, are from a Pentecostal denomination, 25%. The question is, does Scripture address this? And it does. What was going on in the book of Acts? Well, let's actually get to the Bible this morning, shall we? It's, it's very helpful if we can see the reason and the flow of the argument behind tongues. We already started this some weeks ago, and I'm not going to pull you back through all of that, but I do want you to see with your own eyes the development of this doctrine in the book of Acts. Start off in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You'll remember here was one of the ways of outlining the book of Acts. Jesus tells his disciples, you need to wait here in the city And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's speaking of the day of Pentecost. And he says, you shall be my witnesses both, note this, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. There are those concentric circles. It's going to begin in Jerusalem, it's going to go out to Judea and Samaria, and it's going to go out beyond that even to the Gentiles to the end of the earth. That outline is developed in the book of Acts, and I want you to see these passages. So we have, first and foremost, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit comes down and baptizes and fills 120 Jews who are gathered in the upper room. This was the gift of foreign languages given to a bunch of uneducated Galileans, who speak fluently languages they never studied or learned. We know this. That's all review. And it left everybody astonished. And I told you before that God had prepared the church for this day. You can find that if you want to write it down in Deuteronomy 28:49, Jeremiah 5:15, and Isaiah 28:11 and their surrounding contexts. God had told his people in the Old Testament there was going to be a day where the Spirit of God would be poured out and people would speak to them in foreign tongues. That had been prophesied and Scripture had to be fulfilled and the day of Pentecost was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And I gave you, you remember, five signs five reasons why this gift was given. It was a judgment against Israel for their rejection of their Messiah. It was to provoke them right to jealousy. It marked a profound transition from the old covenant to the new. There was a new age of the Holy Spirit. It signified progress in God's redemptive plan. It's now going out to the Gentiles. Tongues authenticated the apostles' ministry and their message. And then last week I told you that Tongues were given to the church as a revelatory gift. What do we mean by that? Well, God was revealing himself through these people who were speaking in foreign languages. Look over at verse 14 of chapter 2. This is where we begin when we come back to this. Notice it says, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's the third hour of the day. 
But this is what was spoken. He, he, he says, these are the very things. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall speak in tongues. Is that what that says? It says they will prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male uh, slaves and female slaves. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall speak in tongues. No. They shall prophesy. Peter, who is speaking in foreign tongues and has been, along with the other 119 who are with him, looks at that event of speaking tongues and says, Aha! Book of Joel, this is the fulfillment. A partial fulfillment, but a fulfillment nonetheless. And he says, he equates their speaking in tongues with what? The gift of prophecy. In other words, in the Old Testament, and this is important to understand, in the Old Testament, when, when the Holy Spirit came upon a person for service, oftentimes they would prophesy. They would proclaim the truth of God. And Peter is linking their speaking in tongues with prophecy, the foretelling of the word of God. In other words, tongues was a gift for intelligible revelation. They're speaking the truth of God by the Spirit of God. And beloved, this is so important because people look at Pentecost, they look at Luke or Acts 2, and they say, oh, that's all about spiritual gifts, that's all about the giving of the Spirit. That passage is all about speaking in tongues. No. That is not the purpose of Acts 2. What is at the center of Luke's attention at Pentecost, beloved, is not so much the giving of the Spirit and the tongues that accompanied them. What is at the center of Luke's attention is the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the gospel now was going out from the Jew to the Gentile, to to all the nations. In other words, this is not a passage that's fixated on spiritual gifts but the universal promise of salvation through faith in Christ to all the nations. The tongue speaking was merely a sign that God was doing something additional, something more. Tongues were given, in other words, as a genuine language which could be understood. It was intelligible. It was truthful. And the point of it all, frankly, is found in verse 21 of chapter 2, where we read this, it will be that everyone who calls everyone, not just the Jew, it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Please put that in your pocket. The point of Pentecost is the outpouring of the Spirit as God is going out from Jerusalem to the nations, God is revealing that he is going to save beyond the Jew. So in Acts 2, what we see is a bunch of Jewish people receiving the Holy Spirit and they reveal the word of God by speaking languages that they did not know as a sign 
that it is going out to the rest of the world. Okay, great, let's press on. Acts chapter 8. You need to see it with your own eyes. Go there. Acts 8. The gospel now is going to go to the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? I don't know. I remember a parable about one. Yeah, right. Exactly. You remember a woman at a well in John 4, and she was a Samaritan. She says to Jesus, I can't believe you're talking to me. This is weird. A, I'm a woman, and B, even more than that, I'm a Samaritan. And Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. The reason that that the Good Samaritan is, is, is such a genius parable, as if Jesus ever had anything other than a genius thought, but is, is that the, the punchline of that thing is that the good guy is the bad guy. Does that make sense? The, who they expected to be the, the, the fiend in the whole episode is in fact the hero. The Samaritans, if you remember, were comprised of the ten northern tribes of Israel who'd been led off into Aus- uh, Australia, <laughs> led off into, not quite that down under, off into Assyria, and they had intermarried with the Assyrians. And they had born children, so they were half-breeds. The two southern tribes who were led off by Babylon, when they came back into Israel, said, you you ten northern tribes, you have nothing to do with us. You cannot even participate in the building of the temple. Get out. You're not our people. They were half-breeds. They were compromisers. They, it's, it's not too great a thing to say that, the, that the, the Jews despised Samaritans. In fact, they used to, if, if, if Galilee were the state of Washington and we are now in Jerusalem and Oregon is the land of the Samaritans, when they would go up to Galilee, they would cross the Jordan River Get, get over there and into the state of Nevada and then, and then up above whatever's above Nevada into Idaho and then they would make their way west over to Seattle because they would not want to put their foot where that Samaritan dust might get on them. Now, do you think it might be shocking to think that God would actually extend the gospel of grace to a bunch of those lousy Samaritans? Saul persecuted the church and it sent the Jews out of Jerusalem into Samaria. Notice the end of verse 1. We'll just read the whole verse. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death and on that day there was a great persecution beginning against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Remember? You're going to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem Then Judea and Samaria, out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Here we are, Judea and Samaria. Let's pick it up with a man by the name of Philip, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming what? The good news of the word. Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria, began preaching Christ to them, and the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was doing. For in the case of Many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. You see, these were those signs that were accompanying the preaching of the gospel at that time. So there was great joy in that city, he says. 
Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. Want to bet? (laughs) And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astounded them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. What does that mean? It means they had repented and they had come to Christ for salvation. And news gets back to the apostles in Jerusalem. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Why do that? Why send Peter and John? They need some exercise? No, because we, there's no way that Samaritans are receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way that they're hearing the word of God and believing it. Peter and John, you go check that out. And so they do. Peter and John came down, verse 15, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Notice this, for they had not, he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And the story goes on from there, and we'll have to put a pause on it because we won't have time. Here's the thing. There is no mention of these Samaritans speaking in tongues. I'll acknowledge that. But I do have a question for you. How was it that Simon saw that the Spirit of God had descended upon these new believers after Peter and John laid their hands on them? I think there's every reason to believe that they spoke in tongues in just the same way as it happened in Acts 2. In fact, Peter is so convinced that salvation is coming to the Samaritans that down in verse 25 we read this, so when they had solemnly bore witness and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were proclaiming the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. It's like they'd walked all the way upstream They fished a hole in which they thought there wasn't any fish in it, and lo and behold, they started hooking fish. And they thought, we got to fish this thing on the way back. There are going to be fish in every town in Samaria. Folks, again, we read this and we go, yeah, big deal. We know. God saves Samaritans. This is brand spanking new to these men. They're like, this is shocking to them. Dale Bruner writes this. Quote, the drama of the Samaritan affair included among its purposes the vivid and visual dismantling of the wall of enmity, that's hatred, between the Jew and Samaritan. The Samaritans were not left to become an isolated sect with no union with the apostolic church. Can you imagine that? You remember Jesus and the woman at the well. Well, where are we going to worship in the future? Is it going to be Jerusalem or is it going to be over here? And, and Jesus is saying, look, it's, it's neither of those things. The Father seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Can you imagine if there was a Jerusalem church and then a Samaritan church? First Samaritan church of Jesus Christ. That would have been a disaster. The point of all of this, beloved, is one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one people, unified as one man, one bride. And Jesus Christ breaks down that barrier between Jew and Samaritan. Even those deeply held bitter contentions are broken apart. Well, the Spirit is poured out on Jews. The Spirit is poured out on Samaritans. Well, who's next? You can guess it. Skip over to verse or chapter 10, and we'll pick up then uh, in verse 24. The gospel now is going to go to Gentiles. And as hard as it is to appreciate the drama between Jew and Samaritan, it's worse between Jew and Gentile. The thought that God would extend salvation to the Gentiles was utterly beyond comprehension. The Gentiles were the dogs as far as the Jews were concerned. They were strangers to the covenant. They were far off. They were the uncircumcised. They were alienated, cut off from the life of God. They were sinners unlike the Jews. That was the mentality. They were on the outside looking in but had no access whatsoever. This is a wall, my friends, that is too thick and too tall to ever be broken down. How will this barrier be breached? What I could put it this way. What would convince Paul? What would convince Peter? What would convince John? What would convince the Jews in Jerusalem that God was going to save even the Gentile? What kind of sign would it take? You can guess. You remember the early parts of Acts 10. Peter's taking a snooze on the upper deck and here comes this sheet with all of those animals on it. You hunters love that text. I know, rise, kill, and eat, Peter. And Peter looks at all of that, and he says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And, and the Lord says to him, Peter, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And the whole point of that, in part, was to enable us to eat a good ham on Father's Day. But, but the bigger point of all of that is that God was going to send salvation to the Gentiles. And just as Peter's vision is closing up, there's a knock on the door, and Peter is told to go down and go with these men. Verse 24. Well, we'll pick up there at the end of verse 23. On the next day, he rose up and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa were with him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius is a Gentile. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshiped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or visit him. 
In other words, I shouldn't be here. But God has shown me that I should not call any man defiled or unclean. That's why I came without even raising any objection when I was summoned. So I asked, for what reason have you summoned me? Cornelius said four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is lodging at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been ordered by the Lord. That's a great verse to preach on about hearing sermons, wouldn't it be? Huh? We're all here. We're all present. We're ready to hear. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most truly comprehend now that God is not one to show partiality. I used to think he showed partiality to the Jew, but now I get it. He says, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does righteousness is welcome to him. For the word of the Lord, which he sent to the sons of who? Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing that happened throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. He's talking about the the, the baptism of John the Baptist. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God appointed him with the Holy Spirit and with, anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also putting him to death by hanging him on a tree. God raised him up on the third day. What's he doing? He's giving them the gospel raised him up on the third day and granted that he appear, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly bear witness that this is the one who's been designated by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Emphasis again on the everyone. Everything up to this point has been Jerusalem, Jew, what Jesus said to us and nobody else. And all of a sudden, he's in the middle of his sermon and he says that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, here's the punchline. While Peter was still speaking these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the word. And all the circumcised believers, who are those? Those are all Jewish Christians who were with Peter. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were astounded. Why? Well, they were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How did they know that? Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues or languages and magnifying God. Peter said, can anyone refuse water for these to be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you see what's happening? 
All of this is going out, and it's a way of God showing the apostles and the early church time after time that, behold, this is a new age. I have poured out my spirit. This is in the fulfillment of Scripture. You now see the gospel going out to the nations. And I'm giving you proof positive that I am saving these people because the same thing that happened to you in Acts 2 is happening to them in Acts 10. In fact, it's it's a funny scene. If you look down at chapter 11, you get a sense of the Jewish bias again. Listen to this. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And Peter came up to Jerusalem, presumably to give a report, and look at this. Those who were circumcised, the Jews, took issue with him, saying, you went to an uncircumcised men and ate with them? That's unthinkable for a Jew to do that. But Peter began speaking (laughs) and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence saying, look, I was in the city of Joppa. And he goes through the the whole kit and caboodle here. He, He lays out the whole story all over again. Let's just cut to the chase. Get down to verse 16, uh, verse 15. And I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. He's talking about the Old Testament here. I remembered the word of the Lord, how, how he, he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus speaking. This is before we know anything of, of, of the New Testament written down. Here he is talking. He's reflecting back on the words of Jesus, how the Spirit would come. And he says in verse 17, look, If God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He might have said it just like that, too. Who was I? If God's going to do this thing, God can do what God does. I'm certain that he's doing it because I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. What happened to us happened to them. Who was I to stand in his way? Peter of old would have liked to have stood in God's way on this. I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. But I love this, verse 18. And when they, that is the larger group of Jews in Jerusalem, heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. It's going out. How'd they know? They spoke in tongues. They were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in languages. Well, we got one more passage to look at here, and that's Acts chapter 19. We'll go very quickly through it. Acts chapter 19 In verses 1 to 7, here we are in Ephesus. Paul is there. Now it happened while uh, while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the upper regions and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said to him, no, we have not even heard if, they're, heard if, the, if the Holy Spirit is being received. They didn't know anything about this. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him, that is Jesus, who is coming after him. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. What do you see? This, this again, is just another step further out. Now we're all the way out in Ephesus. We're a long way from Jerusalem. And people, again, are receiving Christ, and they are speaking in tongues. It is the same Spirit it is the same sign. It is the same gospel. It is the same salvation. And that, my friends, is the point of speaking in tongues. And the only reason that we see, I told you a few weeks ago, that the, the Charismatics and Pentecostals form their doctrine of subsequence, the idea that the Spirit is given after you're saved, at some point when you merit it, qualify for it, have enough faith to receive it, they teach in a second work of the Holy Spirit. The only place you can possibly develop that doctrine is out of the book of Acts. But what we're seeing is not the doctrine of a subsequent baptism. What we're seeing is that in the book of Acts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was often subsequent because the apostles needed to see and hear what was happening, which wouldn't have happened had the Spirit been given immediately. Unless the apostles were there, as in the case of Paul and, and Peter with Cornelius. That doesn't make sense. Talk to me later. You say, wait a minute, I, th I thought you were saying that everyone got the Spirit when they, yeah, we do. That is true. That is, that is the true teaching of Scripture. You get the Spirit once at the point of regeneration. You're converted to Christ. You repent of your sins. You believe in the gospel. You have full possession of the Spirit of God. You do not need to be baptized yet again. But that's not what we see in a couple of these examples. And you're right. And the point is that these believers without the Holy Spirit were in fact genuine believers, but God holds off on their baptism so that the apostles and the church can see that the gospel is going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Things were different back then, in other words. Listen to Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. That salvation, first spoken of by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard. Who's that? Those are the apostles. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, God gave these gifts to attest to the truth of all that he was doing in that apostolic age. That's the significance of the book of, uh, or the gift of tongues. They're, they're for a sign, as Paul says. A sign points to something greater than itself, yeah? 
and assign highlights something, it signifies something, it marks something out. And you, you can think of it this way. You think of a road sign. Tongues were a road sign that signaled, if you will, a, a change in direction in the road ahead. It wasn't plan B. It was just a, a curve in the road. It was something unexpected. You can think about it this way. Tongues were a sign along the road of redemption. God was putting up a sign to show that what once was this little one-lane, one-country road was now broadening out to a four-lane international highway. And they had, they had to see that things were shifting. There had been thousands of years they'd been driving down that little one-country road. God is not simply going to speak to one people with one language, but he is going to speak to all nations in their own tongue. O. Palmer Robert Robertson writes this, quote, For this reason, the gift of tongues should be seen as a dramatic sign at a very specific point in redemptive history. They marked the transition to a truly worldwide gospel. For this reason, tongues played a significant role in the history of redemption. They illustrated dramatically the universalistic character of Christianity. God was no longer limiting himself to one people. Not if you get that, so that I can leave it alone. Okay, good. <laughs> Let me conclude with just a couple comments. You've probably figured out by now that I am strongly persuaded that the biblical gift of tongues is not what's being practiced today in the church. I would be known as what is called a cessationist. Those gifts were for a time, but they ceased. There are all kinds of other people who are continuationists. And I had a brother come to me recently who very graciously but intentionally asked me this question, brother, aren't you limiting the Holy Spirit? And I would say two things. One, I cannot limit the Holy Spirit. I have no power to do that. You understand that. And number two, I have no desire to limit the Holy Spirit. There's, there's no longing in my heart to do that. You see, the question is not, what can God do? It's not an issue of can God continue to enable people by his spirit to speak foreign languages. The question is not what can God do. The question is simply this. What is God doing in our present day? I frankly am aware of nobody who has the legitimate gift of languages. I personally know nobody who knows anybody who has the gift of languages or interpretation. I'll go a step further. I don't know anybody who claims to speak in tongues or, or interprets or says that that's ever happened at their church. What's being practiced today has nothing to do with what God was doing in the first century. But I will add this. I should stick this in there. The fact, the fact remains that of the nearly 3,000 different Bible translations that exist today, nearly 3,000, every one of them 
was translated the hard way. Somebody had to learn Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Somebody had to learn the language that they were going to translate it into. And somebody spent hours upon hours upon hours translating. Why does God do it that way? I don't know. But I know that, that this gift is, is, is not manifesting itself. I mean, if somebody has uh, the, the gift for some language that the Bible hasn't been translated into, by all means, do the work. But given all of that, and it's all anecdotal, I want you to understand none of that is determinative. Experience, whether mine or somebody else's, doesn't solve this issue. The question is, what does the Bible teach? And I believe it makes the case for the cessation of the gifts. Paul himself will say it in no uncertain language next week that tongues shall cease. And he's going to refer to the other miraculous gifts as well. And you need to understand this. Is this true or false? That God revealed to particular people in particular places at particular points in history various signs and gifts. Was Moses able to do anything before Pharaoh? Did Elijah have some gifts that you and I do not have? Do axe heads float in your world? All the way through the Bible, God has given gifts to particular people for particular people or per, uh, places in particular times for particular purposes. It, it happens all over. Why are we so bound and determined to try and force this thing upon the church? Not everything you see in the book of Acts was intended for our day, and we do well to remember it. The ministering gifts that God gives by his spirit remain, but those miraculous gifts, gifts like healing, the working of miracles. Now, Dave, are you saying that God no longer heals? No. But what I am saying is that people don't have the gift of healing. That was given for a particular time for a particular reason. Am I saying that, that God, God, God no longer does miracles? No. I'm just saying that you don't have the gift of miracles and neither do I. You take your staff and jam it in the American River, it probably ain't going to split. And I doubt the ground's going to be dry that you walk on to cross it. I wouldn't try it. The water's high and cold right now. All right? Those are the things that the Bible refers to as signs and wonders, and we just saw that in some of the texts we just read. And then there are those relative, or relative, uh, <laughs> revelatory gifts that I also believe have passed off the scene, the gift of prophecy, and that is prophecy with a capital P, the idea of personal information coming to an individual from God and then being spoken out like God did in the prophets and the apostles. We do not believe that is happening any longer. God is not giving new revelation through men. It's all in the scriptures. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, all, all of those that had to do with further revelation. And this is where the gift of tongues and interpretation comes in. It was a revelatory gift. It was just a supernatural sign for a time. Here's the point. The apostolic age concluded with the completion of the canon of Scripture. And once that canon was closed, the need for those signs 
was no longer there because they're all recorded in the Bible for us. The doctrinal foundation of the church was laid. The scriptures are complete. Revelation has been made in full in the person of Jesus Christ recorded for us in the book of the scriptures. And that was when these things began to pass off. That's why there are no more apostles. That's why there are no more capital P prophets. And that is why there are no more attesting signs. And you can nod and you can say, it's plain enough to me, okay, Dave, fine, from the book of Acts that this was a gift of genuine foreign languages and that the sign of speaking languages was given to one people group after another and that all of that demonstrated supernaturally that salvation was going to the nations through faith in Christ from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, even out to the uttermost parts of the earth. I get it from the book of Acts, but you haven't even touched the book of 1 Corinthians, which is where we hear of tongues of angels and private prayer language. and You'll have to come back. It's next week. Let's pray while the music team comes forward. Lord, how glad we are for your gracious salvation. How glad we are for the clarity of your word. How glad we are, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is a pledge and seal of our redemption. Lord, we're yours. We're yours forever. That will never change, and we're thankful for the the gifts that the Spirit brings and the means by which you edify your body and build us up. Thank you so much for uh, your goodness to us, Lord, that you never leave us or forsake us, but you have made things clear, and you have promised us in that promise alone, just by having the Spirit, that we would, in fact, have all that is necessary by the working of your Word through the Spirit to understand life, to live life, to understand and have illumination into things, to be wise. Lord, I pray for even a greater filling of your spirit of fullness to be evident in us, that we would manifest those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that we would speak your truth, that we would prophesy, that we would bear out, foretell your word and your gospel to a world that is dying. And Lord, again, we ask for your special work in the hearts of those who are going to Alaska that they too would bear forth the truth, that they would do it with the power of your spirit and that you might see fit to redeem many. All these things we ask in Christ's name, amen.